Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today I'm talking to Eddie Stern, Eddie is a lifelong friend and an incredibly wise mentor. I met Eddie when I was 25 and walked into his Ashtanga yoga studio in the village, which changed my life. Eddie still teaches yoga today, and he just wrote a fascinating book called One Simple Thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. Whether or not you're into yoga, meditation, breathwork, or mindfulness, I think you're going to be drawn into Eddie's perspective on connection and change. We're not trying to get rid of the person we are. We're just trying to free ourselves from needing to be that person so mm-hmm. it authentically gets, you know, expressed. So we're going to be who we are and we want to express that. What we don't want to do is be artificial about who we are and try to be something that we're not. Let's turn to my conversation with Eddie Stern. Have I seen you since you married me? No. This is the first time. <laughs> Do I seem different? (laughs) You seem so amazingly, awesomely great. (laughs) Yes, for our listeners at home, Eddie Stern, who I'm interviewing today, who is a lifelong friend and mentor and yoga teacher, officiated at our wedding. It was so much fun. It was a beautiful wedding. Thank you. And you blew your nose in my pocket square. When you started crying, I know, and I and I owe I feel that I owe you a pocket square. I don't know. I've sold that on eBay for like <laughs> so much money. It put Lily through her first year of college. <laughs> Actually, I washed it. <laughs> <laughs> I still I still feel mm. that I owe you a new one. Well, do you do lots of weddings? Do you officiate at lots of weddings? No, I do very 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 few. Only for the most special beloved people in my life. Performing a wedding is like a really for since I'm not an actual official like professional priest, 
I feel there's a lot of responsibility in performing a wedding. It's really one of the most sacred things, I think. And you're like, you're there in front of God and everyone making these really important vows and being sort of participating in those vows by helping to proclaim them. And I feel there's a lot of responsibility in that and I don't mm -hmm. take it lightly. So I hadn't performed a wedding for, I think, at least six or seven years until you asked me to do yours. I'd gone into retirement. I'd only done about maybe maximum eight of them, six to eight, but I thought, okay, I'm gonna stop doing this about six years ago. And then you asked me, and then Rookie I was like, bet. so happy you asked me. <laughs> but as somebody who is so connected and is, you're a teacher in so many respects. I think one of my favorite things about you is that you're so funny and grounded and normal and you're still like kind of you're this like punk rock New York kid from the 80s. But then you have this incredible connection to, I don't know what you want to call it, God or larger consciousness so I imagine that a lot of people would want you to do it. So anyway, I'm just very honored. Anyway, it was a beautiful wedding. and Thanks thank to you. you. Well, no, you know, you guys are a beautiful couple. It was, uh, how would you describe it? Like a Hindu kind of? It was, it was pretty Jewish. Yeah, it was pretty Jewish. It was pretty Jewish. Yeah, it was. And it was only mildly Hindu. It was perfect. Good. Thank you. Yay. So I have so many, I'm so thrilled that you're here. Me too. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You have made such an incredible impact on my life for so many years. Aww. I think I was 25 when I first met you. So 21 years ago. Yes, wow. And I came into your studio. You were teaching Ashtanga yoga. And at the time, yoga was not popularized at all in the way it is today. You know, having grown up in Southern California, you had kind of heard of yoga. But somebody brought me to your class. I was struggling physically and mentally. And so I was brought to you. The practice that you taught, it was at the time, well, it's, I don't know if people know what Ashtanga yoga is, but we can, I'm going to ask you about it. Okay. But there was such an incredible restraint about it and a patience and that had to be learned as part of it. It was like I learned one pose and then I came back the next day and it was the same pose. And then, then, and I saw everybody next to me doing all these things, you know, and as an achiever, I just thought I want to do what they're doing. I want to, and then third day it was the same pose and the fourth day it was the same pose and the fifth day. And then I got one extra pose. And what I realized it was the beginning of some kind of recalibration that is still in a way going on of trying to optimize yourself without being so results oriented. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about Ashtanga yoga and the practice and how you came to it. And if you, because, you know, you were a musician with a mohawk running around New York City, how on earth did you find this practice? Well, first of all, in just an answer to what you were saying you felt about yoga and what it was doing for you. I think that was a very apt description. It is a recalibration. It's sort of a resetting of our system. Yoga does teach you patience and restraint. And one of the first things about yoga, the first limb, Ashtanga means eight limbs. And it means there are basically eight different ways that we can gradually begin to consciously choose how we're gonna participate in our lives and in the world. And the first thing that we choose is 
how we are going to restrain ourselves in particular ways. So in America, we have this idea of freedom, the pursuit of happiness. And this was built into our constitution, but the idea that it's changed into over the ensuing, you know, several hundred years, a couple hundred years, is that we feel that freedom means that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. And this is a lot of what our culture is based on now. But that's not freedom, that's hedonism. Freedom comes from when you are able to choose wisely the best direction for you to go in, which is going to bring about the greatest amount of ultimate good, not just for yourself, but for society or your family or the people around you. And sometimes that path involves a lot of friction. And challenge and restraint. And so the restraint that we're building by approaching a spiritual practice slowly and incrementally is to learn how to create healthy boundaries. So when we are struggling with things mentally, emotionally, and physically, it means that we're not too sure where to create these healthy boundaries. So we have to pull ourselves back quite often to the beginning, start from the bottom up, and create those healthy boundaries as we go along. And one of those things is to know, like, what are my actual limits? Like, I think I can do a lot, I want to do a lot, but by doing a lot, that's not always so good for me. Maybe I'll do a lot today and I'm not gonna do anything else for the next two weeks. So that's not a constructive use of building a healthy, positive habit. So what we do in the yoga practice is we say, let's start with a little and see if you stick with it. And if you stick with it, then we'll start adding things on. And then before you know it, you're doing a lot more than you've expected you could do. And maybe even you get to the point where you think, now I know this is enough for me right now. You know, I don't want to move forward from here because I'm in an okay place. How important is that commitment to the everyday piece of it? It's crucial for because what we're doing is we're creating a habit of awareness. When we want to build a healthy boundary, when we want to, even if we want to transform ourselves, if we want to grow, whatever it is, we need to be self-aware. And awareness is actually a habit. Like sitting down to meditate every day, you're building this habit of awareness. You can't do it one day and then not do it for a month. You won't build a positive habit. What the habits do is it begins on a you know neurological level. Our, our brains are plastic. It rewires our brain in particular ways so we become used to doing a thing in a particular way for a certain effect. If you are eating a bad diet and you know that for your health, you need to clean up your diet, you can't eat a salad one day and then eat hamburgers for a week and affect that you're you know, expect that your your arteries are gonna <laughs> are gonna be in better shape because you had one salad. So doing yoga is like, you know, eating salad for our body basically and, and for our physiology. The doing of things every day creates a habit. The habit changes us physiologically, our brain structure, our nervous system structure. And then what that begins to do is it changes our baseline response to the way we interact with the world around us. So yoga is very much a bottom-up approach to transformation. We start with the body because it's the easiest thing to work with. And in the working with the body, we're accessing the nervous system. We're beginning to make changes to the way that our nervous system responds to internal and external environments, which is what the nervous system does. It coordinates those two. And then our baseline response changes so that when we come up against a challenging situation, we see it through new eyes. Like, oh, this person used to really annoy me, but now for some reason they don't. Or, oh, this situation used to make me really angry, but now I can take a deep breath. And that only comes from developing the habit of awareness and the habit of working with our body in a particular way. In the beginning, it doesn't need to be every day, 
two or three days a week. And then little by little, when you really want to get into it, you need to, to make a commitment. I always felt that my commitment to practice was similar to a commitment to being in a marriage also. Right. Like, you know, you get married and you're in your marriage every day. And, and you work on the things when they're difficult and you enjoy the things that are wonderful. And, that's, and from a commitment, you grow and you mm-hmm. become the person you are from commitment. And uh, the same is true with a spiritual practice. I remember always being, when I would come to the studio, if I was shooting a movie or something and I had to practice at five in the morning and it was those really special few times where I came in and you were finishing your practice which I think you started at three o'clock in the morning or something. And to be able to, you know, without sounding cheesy, like be in the presence of a master like that, who the, the mastery that you had over your body. And, you know, I would look at you and think, my God, I had no idea that a human body could actually be in that position. But even more so, the feeling in the room, it was very, it was very powerful. You know, it was so much it had transcended the physical part so much whatever was going on internally in your practice was something that was really palpable yeah i mean i certainly have never considered myself to be a master of anything whenever you're working with your body you even if it looks good from the outside on the inside you know that you're working really hard to pay attention or to be aware and we're not just physical beings and yoga is not just physical because our mind-body is a continuum and our emotions express themselves through our body. Our emotions get held in our body. So we're working on a lot of things when we're doing poses. Um, But also on another level, yoga is very, very physical because we use our physical body to access our emotions and our feelings and our mental states and our responsivity to the world. So we need to, I mean, we think about stuff because we have a form to think of it in. We have a body. Mm. If we didn't have a body, we wouldn't be able to think. We wouldn't be able to feel. If there wasn't a world around us, then we wouldn't have a body either. So this thing of having a body shouldn't be discounted by like any spiritual tradition because because we have one, all these other things are happening. I think yoga integrates that somehow. I don't know if that made sense. But, Absolutely. And do you think that that was by design, that that's, you know, thousands of years ago, that that's what the original yogis were trying to do, find some way to integrate these things or make connections spiritually through the body or process emotion through the body? I definitely do. I think that's one of the reasons why this is one of the things that led me first to start thinking about the nervous system and about writing the the book that I just finished doing that there's a reason why the yogis use the body. And we all know from the yoga texts that the purpose of yoga is enlightenment, spiritual realization, or self-knowledge, knowing who you are, you know, like the capital S. And so I was thinking, well, why would they use physical poses to achieve something like enlightenment? There's got to be a reason for it. And so the thing that I came up across basically was that something's happening with the nervous system and there's a certain equilibrium which is occurring in certain structures of the brain like the brain stem and the yogis were using things like restraint of the breath or control of the breath control of the body control of diet and food control of sexuality a control of sleep 
These are all the main things that you see happening in the yoga texts. And, and how so, old are these texts? Uh, thousands of years. The practices are thousands of years old. All of those brainstem functions are survival functions, mm -hmm. the body automatically keeping us alive. One of the greatest fears that we have in life is the fear of death or the fear of extinction. So we want our body to keep us alive because we don't want to be dead. Now, what happens if for a little while every day I control my breathing? I control my posture and my blood pressure. I control how much I sleep or the food I eat. What happens if I don't eat for a day or two or a few, few days running? You know, who will I be if I don't identify with food? Who will I be if I don't identify with sex? Who will I be if I don't identify with my respiration? Because if we don't breathe for a few seconds <laughs> or a minute, all of a sudden our body makes us want to breathe. So what they did was they restrained all these survival functions where our identity is tied into. Our identity ego, right? and our sense of who we are, of existence, is absolutely one and the same as our physiological survival functions. But what they did was they began to restrain these, which allowed them to transcend the narrative that we create of who we think we are, the false narrative of our story, all the constructed stories. And you feel this when you do yoga is that you begin to transcend and evaporate the constructed stories that aren't making you happy, that aren't leading you towards deeper meaning in your life, but are keeping you locked in this, who do I need to be to please the rest of the world? And that doesn't bring happiness to us or to the world. So they worked with physiological functions to transcend these limited structures that we artificially create to find freedom. And where would they find freedom? In these higher levels of brain functioning. And then when there was cohesive brain functioning, that would lead to greater levels of integration of pure consciousness into the entire physiology, transformative. That was my thinking process of, of my research, basically. And that's what the book is about for the most part. The book is called One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. That's the name of it. And these things are like super, super fascinating to me. So I think that's why the yogis started with postures and with breathing uh, and with restraint. It was to control these, the narratives that are built into our survival functions so they could go beyond that. Say, who am I beyond the story I tell about myself? And how do you integrate when being in that state with also being a human being in, you know, traffic and with fast food and problems at work? And do you, are you able to bring that consciousness into, like, I always find it, I always used to find it a little bit hard to reconcile the two things, like, like come to practice and feel this incredible integration feel physically, you know, exhausted slash strong, feel an incredible sense of calm from having gone through the practice and then go out, you know, onto Spring Street in New York City and sort of get crashed in the face with right. life again. Go to Krispy Kreme and buy a box of donuts, <laughs> for example. <laughs> oh my God. Remember when one time I was on the street drinking a sports drink after <laughs> yoga and you were like, what the hell? <laughs> you can't drink it's that. better than having a cigarette after yoga. I Although used that to do is that the too. best cigarette of the day. Your lungs are so open. <laughs> there's, there's flows of information and all those things are important. We use yoga to be better integrated into the world. Mm -hmm. 
we all are born as the people that we are and we want to express who we are we all do even the yogis who seem to be enlightened beings had their own personalities that they were expressing in different ways and when you read either nisargadatta or ramana maharshi or ramakrishna or any of these in, enlightened sages they had distinct personalities and they had distinct teachings that went along with these personalities so i don't think what we're we're not trying to get rid of the person we are we're just trying to free ourselves from needing to be that person so mm-hmm. it authentically gets you know expressed so we're going to be who we are and we want to express that what we don't want to do is be artificial about who we are right. and try to be something that we're not i think a lot of what yoga does is it is helping to move things out of the way that are covering up who we really are mm-hmm. and you know maybe who i really am is number 1 consciousness and number 2 maybe that consciousness is representing itself in this particular form as someone who likes tailored suits and listens to punk rock music like um, you exactly so <laughs> you know and so that might just be an expression of like this particular incarnation that i am and so i'll enjoy that but i also have to remember other things like to listen to people and to try to be kind and if i do something wrong to apologize and and live you know live up to the fact that i made a mistake all those things have to do with honesty and honesty is the second limb of yoga actually not causing harm is the first one right. and honesty is the second one so if we look at all of the things that yoga says you should do in order to be authentically you know true to yourself those are the first two things like try not to hurt people and be honest be kind and be honest if you can do those two things like if i can do those two things i think that's pretty good I, i'm pretty have, satisfied <laughs> you might have to get donald trump doing some yoga i mean you know <laughs> I, if he wants to i'm i'm happy to do some with him <laughs> when i was we put on a conference a few weeks ago on science and yoga conference and one of the presenters was talking about how having yoga or these types of meditation practices in schools for dealing with bullying you know and sometimes you think if the people who are being bullied were doing yoga they'd be able to deal with it and what this woman was saying was well if the bullies could do some yoga right that would really change the way that they treat other people so this is true know, i'm not saying donald trump is a bully i'm just saying that you know people in positions of great power sometimes need to know how to temper that but i think you're right i think that if all of our leaders came into their positions with this kind of consciousness do no harm yeah honesty creating self-awareness listening listening mm-hmm. yeah being receptive to alternative points of view yeah i think that's a really interesting point because we're at a a time when there's i think in my lifetime the most resistance to alternative points of view no whichever side you're on it's like people have become so stuck in that way of perceiving the world and their values and it's sort of adhering to their values you know so both all all sides i i feel like people are having a very very hard time with the listening piece i agree totally totally it's a very polarized state of affairs right now yeah and if you don't agree with someone's view you're wrong and you're you know you're the Last year I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. 
It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. We'll get back to today's chat in a minute. So clearly I'm biased, but the Goop podcast is one of the most rewarding projects that I've ever worked on at Goop, or really anywhere. I love the conversations I get to have here with so many incredible thought leaders. Pretty much ever since we launched the Goop podcast last March, we've been dreaming up other podcast series that we'd want to listen to and share with you guys. And I'm super excited about what we came up with. Our first series to follow the Goop podcast is called Goop Fellas. It's hosted by, yes, you guessed it, two men. Will Cole is a functional medicine practitioner and Seamus Mullen is a chef. They've both become good friends of mine and part of the Goop family. You might have heard them both on this podcast before. Like me, and many of you, I'm sure, Will and Seamus are really interested in what drives people to change, to heal, to reinvent themselves, to reclaim their health, or bounce back from a heartbreak. Seamus himself almost died from rheumatoid arthritis, and Will's day job is helping people uncover and overturn the roots of disease. In other words, they are intimately familiar with unlikely personal transformations. On Goop Fellas, Will and Seamus sit down with people who have incredible stories about confronting life challenges. It's our hope that these conversations will appeal to men, because I don't think there is enough space in our culture for men to be vulnerable. But this is also a series for women, and for that matter, for anyone who is looking to bring about change in their life, big or small. You can listen to Goop Fellas on your favorite podcast platforms. We've just launched the first season, and we'll be dropping new episodes on Wednesdays. Subscribe to keep up. And to learn more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. I hope you love Will, Seamus, and this series as much as I do. Let's get back to Eddie Stern. So how do you approach it if somebody talks to you about something and you, you, you deeply disagree with their point of view? Like as a yogi, what, what consciousness do you bring to that conversation? There are things that still push my buttons. Um, like that, what? Well, um, certain views on yoga, for example, that sometimes I respond a little bit like I'm a little too opinionated on some of my responses. So, But it's the, interesting, sorry to interrupt, yep. but... Because I remember when I started practicing yoga 20 plus years ago, mm-hmm. there was such, like people were so resistant to the idea of yoga. And I remember there being articles about it and negative articles and negative articles about me doing yoga. Yeah. Do you remember all that? I do. I thought at the time, wow, I, it was. I think it was the first time in my life I realized this sort of sideline commentary. And I thought, you know, I still have this sometimes today in my life where I think, well, how can you, if you haven't really gotten the knowledge or tried something, how can you opine on what it is? And I remember there That's was just the like, easiest way to have a judgment or an opinion <laughs> is when you know nothing about something. Exactly. 
Why do you think there was so much resistance to yoga 20 years ago? And why do you think it's become so popular today? I, you know, I really don't know. When I started doing yoga, the only reason you did yoga was because you were on a spiritual quest. Right. There was no fitness industry. There was no yoga industry. We didn't have yoga mats. There was no yoga clothing. There was no yoga industry. What year was this? This was 1986, 1987, closer to 1987. And I had done some yoga earlier and uh, when I was about 15 or so and was kind of profoundly moved by it. But then I didn't take it up as a practice till I was about 19 or so. And how? And what was that path? I was working in a record store in Greenwich Village called Bleaker Bob's. And there was a guy working there who had done yoga with a yogi named Amrit Desai. He'd received something called Shakti Pot from him, which was like a transference of energy, and had a, a non-dual unity experience of himself and the universe that lasted for weeks. A what? He saw himself as one with the universe and the universe is one with him. And he lived in this state of consciousness for like, for several weeks, he said, wow. you know, not with drugs or anything like that. So he was sort of my first like yoga tutor. But there, we weren't doing yoga poses. Like he was giving me books to read. Um, we were talking about philosophy. I became a vegetarian first and tried doing some meditation with him. We were taking a lot of LSD and mushrooms <laughs> and ecstasy. <laughs> And this was like the, the sort of the beginning of that journey. And then I was sitting in a um, in Washington Square Park one night uh, with my guitar and I had been up all night tripping with Ted. And then he went back home and I was still in the park just playing guitar. And some guy came up to me and we started talking and I we got into spiritual topics. Like I didn't know what necessarily what spiritual topics were, but we got into that zone of consciousness. And he said, have you ever heard of Ram Das?" And I said, no. And he said, oh, you should check him out because he writes about what you're talking about. So the next afternoon I was walking down West 4th Street and I saw on the, on the church board that Ram Das was gonna be giving a lecture that night. And I thought, oh my God, this is like amazing. So, you know, when you start tapping into those levels of consciousness, synchronicity and things like that begin occurring. So I went to the lecture and afterwards went up and spoke to Ram Das, and there was light pouring out of his eyes. And I started seeing that all the things I was experiencing from psychedelics could be done with meditation and with yoga. And so I stopped doing drugs completely and went totally straight edge. This was at 19 and just started investigating this yoga thing. And there was only a couple of yoga schools in New York and I went to all the classes that I could, which were just a few times a week and did it on my own at home in the afternoons and in the morning. And that was how my journey began. And by the time I was 20, yoga was the only thing that fascinated me. So I went to India. I took a teacher training course in South India and I came back to New York and started teaching yoga at 21. And that was 30 years ago. So and there's no yoga industry at all? At no, I didn't know you could, like, I didn't start doing this to be a yoga teacher. I didn't know that I could teach yoga. I thought you had to be enlightened to teach yoga, like literally. Like if you weren't enlightened, you couldn't teach yoga. That's who could teach. So there was no thought of being a yoga teacher back then. And so then what happened? You, then it, how, did, how did you see yoga starting to be popularized? Yoga got popularized, I think, because of some of the celebrity culture that was occurring around the practice. Right. I think that yoga was working its way into the mainstream a little bit, but like not 
a tremendous amount. Like Martha Stewart did a, a show on yoga and, you know, I was invited on that show. You might have been practicing by then already anyway, I think. So it was sort of working its way into the mainstream. But the way that it was working its way into the mainstream was definitely through, quote unquote, celebrity and involvement. Right. And in downtown New York, we mm-hmm. happened to be sort of one of the, the locus points for that. I think you were the only one. Um, I'm, there must have been some stuff going on in California. Maybe um, so, yeah. But I think we had bigger celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were so, some pretty big celebrities I in mean, there. yeah, the, the school was like pretty insane for a while. Yeah. Like, but, and, but the thing about it was is that you guys, whether you know you were there, Madonna or Mike D or Willem Dafoe or all those people, you guys were struggling on your mats like anybody else. So it wasn't like you were at the front of the room and going, hey, look at me. Everyone was like working hard and sweating and yeah. being disgusting. There's a very ecumenical kind of a setup to a class like that yeah. where if you're not doing the work, you're not going to be there. Right. So yoga is tough. I think the cultures go through consciousness shifts every once in a while. And there are a lot of things that drive it because yoga has been in, in the West for a long time. Swami Vivekananda brought it over in the 1800s and 1889 was sort of when yoga first came to America. Following him, other Swamis from his lineage came and established centers in New York City. The Ramakrishna Mission was here, and there's two of them, in fact. And in the 1940s, there was a teacher who was a student of Krishnamacharya. Krishnamacharya was my teacher's teacher. Her name was Indra Devi, and she was teaching Gloria Swanson and Marilyn Monroe and people like that oh, in wow. Hollywood. This was in the 1940s I and 50s. I didn't know that. That's yeah. amazing. So the, the fitness part of yoga started developing with Indra Devi in Hollywood during those years. There were people running ashrams in New York. There was Prabhupada, um, Srila Prabhupada from the Hare Krishna movement, who was in New York in the 1960s, developing that type of bhakti yoga, devotional yoga. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in the Transcendental Yoga Movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Swami Vishnu Devananda, who came to Canada in the 1960s. So there was a lot of stuff going on. But it was, and also um, Swami Satchidananda, who gave the opening remarks at Woodstock and chanted a peace prayer to kick off Woodstock, was definitely one of the major kind of yoga happenings. But it was all very much on the hippie scale. Right. And the Swamis loved the hippies because they were open minded and they would try it. You know, they were like, yeah, let's go for it, let's do it. But a shift started happening in the 1990s where people who had formerly been hippies now were maybe, you know, had corporate jobs, but they were bringing yoga with them. So the whole sort of chain of events went from people who were once hippies, you know, I was kind of like a quasi hippie or a punk rock or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like now I wear tailored suits. So, you know, I could be an example (laughs) of someone who went from a very alternative lifestyle to a very mainstream lifestyle, but carried yoga with them, Mm -hmm. even though I'm a yoga teacher. But there were a lot of people like that. A lot of people who are now doctors and surgeons and politicians who maybe came to yoga earlier on and brought it with them into their new fields. So I think that we have a a rich history in America of yoga. And at a certain point, like the time where, you know, you and Madonna and other people started doing it, there was the steam was already going. Yeah. You know, we had Deepak Chopra, who had written Quantum Healing in 1987. And that brought this idea of alternative types of ways of looking at healing in regards to things like cancer and diabetes and other diseases in a whole new light. 
So everything in Andrew Weil, you know, mm-hmm. and Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. So there was a whole burgeoning forward. And Deepak, he's a physician. So here's an MD who's talking about Ayurveda and yoga and spontaneous remission of disease. And some people thought the guy's a quack, but other people thought here's a new paradigm. Right. So I think that pre- I was, you know, lucky enough to come around into yoga at the time that there actually was a paradigm shift occurring. And now what we're seeing are the fruits of that big paradigm shift from the 1980s. And, you know, it's not like Carlos Castaneda anymore and everyone, you know, there's still the big ayahuasca movement going on and stuff like that. But everything's come very, very mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good because yoga is helpful for people and meditation is helpful for people in all facets of society, from prisons to healthcare to education. So I think this has been a good movement. And there's been a big groundswell, yeah. uh, you know, in a very short period of time to propel yoga from something that was mainly for the hippies to something which is like for everybody mm-hmm. and it should be for everybody. Tell me a little bit about that connection between yoga and the body, This, the where it intersects with science and the research you've done and that you talk about in the book. When did you or how did you start studying yoga from through a more scientific lens about eight years ago a researcher named dr marshall Hagens came to see me at the school our school in soho and he was doing a study or wanted to do a study on pre-hypertensive conditions in african-americans they have a much higher pr- propensity towards hypertensive conditions because of the way their blood absorbs salt in different ways and other genetic factors as well and he wanted to see if yoga would help with this so I designed a protocol for him. It was an NIH-funded study, National Institute of Health. They gave him $300,000 for the study. We had very positive results. Through the yoga practice, sleeping blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure when you're asleep, if that changes a certain amount of mercury points, that's one of the things that doctors are looking for. Not just ambulatory or resting blood pressure, but sleeping blood pressure is a great indicator of cardiovascular health. So we saw like three to four mercury point changes in that and overall seven point mercury changes in other types of ratios of blood pressure, which is equivalent to some statin drugs for people. So this was a good thing, but it was a small study. Only 86 people were in the study, 68 finished them. This was the thing that spurred me on to being involved with science. And they were doing a daily Ashtanga practice? It was a modified Ashtanga yoga practice. With meditation or? Um, just how we do it, deep breathing at the end. And they were doing it twice a week, I believe, in a class, and then a few times a week on their own at home. And then I went on to do a few more studies with Marshall. We did one on grade point average in high school students, 40-week yoga program compared with 40 weeks of gym. And the 40 weeks of yoga, the same basic kind of a protocol for the hypertension study, saw 2.7% rise in grade point average for the kids who had done 40 weeks of yoga. And I think a lot of that is because when you begin to balance your nervous system, it's easier for you to be in a state of attention. Mm. That's where you need to be if you want to do your homework, if you want to listen in class. If you're in a state of hyperarousal because of trauma, because of stress, because of bullying, because of whatever, then as your body is releasing excess amounts of cortisol, that extra cortisol is attaching itself to receptors in the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for 
attention and strategic planning, long-range planning, compassion and empathy. And as those cortisol molecules are attaching themselves to the receptors in the prefrontal cortex, it temporarily impairs our ability to have focused attention, to strategically plan, to know I need to do my homework, you know, not an hour before class, but I need to prepare. We can't do that when there's too much of a hyperarousal of the, the endocrine system. So what is actually happening in the body when one has a yoga, a consistent yoga practice? Is it that, I mean, how, how is cortisol less prolific in a response? Okay, so cortisol is released anytime we do any level of activity as well as adrenaline. If I get up now and walk across the room to get a cup of coffee, I'm re- releasing adrenaline cortisol only enough that I need to use to do that type of a thing. These hormones are, and neurotransmitters are also released in the face of a threat. Right. Okay, so if I'm challenged by something, stepping into the street and a car comes and I jump out of the way, I'm going to release a bunch of adrenaline and cortisol, which is going to help me to jump out of the way and protect myself. If for some reason I hold on to this experience and every time I'm stepping off of a street curb, I think a car is going to come and my body keeps responding to a non-dangerous situation as though it's a threat, I'll still have the same chemical response within me. And the problem with our society now is, and with, or as long as there's been conflict, which has led people to have traumatic events, is that we begin to perceive things that are not life-threatening as though they are. We perceive threats all around us and we begin to live in a defensive state. Mm -hmm. And that means that we're releasing these different chemical substances which are preventing us from being in the moment, Mm -hmm. preventing us from seeing things as they really are. And that's what happens. We, We are, and this is ruled by primarily the sympathetic nervous system. So we are in a state of sympathetic arousal, which leads to inflammation of the body, which leads to inflammation of the mind, of the emotions. So there's a switch, which is called the vagal break, where when you just begin to focus on your breath and you begin to lengthen your exhale, you are working on the braking system, which is your parasympathetic nervous system, which means you pause. You learn how to slow down and pause by applying the brake. When we are in sympathetic arousal, we have an acceleration problem. So what we need to do is we need to work on the brake to let the accelerator come back up. And that's precisely what yoga does. Through breathing, also through postures, and through meditation as well. But the breath is the simplest and single most effective tool that we already know about. Because you have kids, when your kids were younger and they were getting upset and crying and really upset about something, what would you tell them to do? Breathe. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. You know, that's what we automatically, we say, just take a deep breath. Let's take a quick break. There are a handful of practitioners that I've met through Goop who have changed my life and Lauren Roxborough was one of the first. Lauren is a body alignment expert. In practice, this means she helps put people back together or keeps them feeling whole. Years ago, we started calling her the body whisperer at Goop. Maybe this sounds hyperbolic, but as far as nicknames go, this one really fits. A one-on-one session with Lauren is special. Every time I get off her table, having been stretched and rolled by her and manipulated, I leave somehow feeling a few inches taller. She's my favorite person to rebound with, which means jumping on a mini trampoline. 
And I think it's safe to say my fascia has never been healthier thanks to Lauren's foam rolling routines. Fascia, for those who don't know, is the connective tissue that wraps our muscles. What most impresses me about Lo, though, is the way she's been able to impact many more people than she could ever see in her small private practice. And a lot of this has been through her books. Her latest book, which I love, is called The Power Source, the hidden key to ignite your core, empower your body, release stress, and realign your life. It's a tall order, but the book does not let you down. Lowe begins with the pelvic floor, breaking down why it's an integral component of our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And then she moves through the rest of the body, putting together an easy-to-follow program for overall physical and energetic well-being. This is a book that I know I'll pick up for years to come whenever I need to return to a low routine for letting go of tension, strengthening the body, or finding some inner balance. The Power Source by Lauren Roxborough is out now, and you can pick up a copy in the Goop shop. Let's get back to Eddie Stern. The interesting thing about Ashtanga Yoga, which was my entree into right. the world of yoga was that the measured breathing is part of every posture. Correct. So you're breathing in for five, you're breathing out and you're breathing five times. It's all sort of yes laid out so that the breathing meditation works in conjunction with the physical poses. Yes. And then for me anyway, my experience was and is that when those things work together, then you find those areas in the body that are stuck or where there's emotion. I remember being so surprised how every time I did hip openers, I would be on the verge of tears or cry. I found it really embarrassing at the, at the beginning. I thought like, this is, I'm in a room full of people. And I remember you coming and I was in Baddha Konasana and you stood on my thighs, legs. legs. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I had the most incredible release and I really burst into tears. And from that point on, not only was I aware of where we have the propensity to store certain things in the body, but I never stored pain, emotional pain in my hips in the same way yeah, again. And, and you could do the pose. And I could do the pose. Yeah. Yeah. Which just goes to show you that like our, our body, our mind and our emotions are not separate. They're all one thing. Right. We are all like one thing, but we separate them off for some reason. Because we and, can make more money if we separate them off. <laughs> well, there you go. And, and also we've been trained to do that for a very long time. Yeah. We have 100 years of Western philosophical training, mm -hmm. which has told us that the mind and body are distinct. Right. But they're not. They're a continuum. It's not even that they're connected. Like we, our body is a field of awareness. Our body is a field of experience in the same way that our mind is a field of experience and awareness that is one and the same with our body. How do you recommend people get into doing yoga? The best thing to do is go onto YouTube because there's tons of yoga on the internet and you can learn a lot in the comfort of your own home or find a good video series. Are you on YouTube teaching yoga? I'm not on YouTube teaching yoga, but I do have a bunch of videos on a website called healthwire.fm. Okay. And uh, I have... I think about 15 yoga therapy videos, which are super entry level, a few breathing videos, and an 18-part Ashtanga Yoga, breaking it down section by section video series also. You also have, which I have to mention because I use it quite a lot, an amazing breathing app. Aw, 
Thank you. I'm glad you use it. I love it. And what I love so much about it is there's, you can, if you want to keep your eyes open, you can watch, well, you explain how the breathing app works. Okay. So the breathing app is based on something called resonance breathing. It's been around for a long time. When monks and yogis go into meditative state, automatically their, automatically their breath rate goes down. So normally we breathe about 15 to 18 times per minute. And it was noticed that these yogis, when they were being measured in, in labs, when they went into a meditative state, automatically their breath rate would go down to between five to seven breaths per minute. Oh, wow. Automatically. And when that happened, their heart rates, their heart rate variability, which is the beat to beat difference in your heart rate, like our heart is beating all the time, but it's not always beating in the same pattern. Mm -hmm. To have a lot of variability in the pattern of beats is a very good thing. It shows cardiac health. If we exercise, our heart rate should go up. And when we rest, it should come back down. When we inhale, the heart rate should go up a little. When we exhale, the heart rate should come down a little. So this is called heart rate variability. If, you're, if your heart rate doesn't change when you're doing any of those things, then there's something wrong. So it's one of the ways that doctors measure cardiac health. And then the next is blood pressure. So normally our blood pressure, our heart rate variability, and our respiration rate are kind of doing different things. They're not all lined up together. But during this five to seven breath cycle, the heart rate, the heart rate variability, and the blood pressure all come into the same wave. And if you chart it out on like as a sinus wave, they're all doing the same thing at the same time. And this is called resonance. When that happens, your nervous system resets itself. It creates a new baseline responsivity, which becomes very, say, interactive with the environment that you live in. So uh, when we talked about living in a defensive or non-defensive state, in a non-defensive state means that you have a lot of prosocial behavior, you can read facial cues, you're aware of what's happening within you, you have an interoceptive sense of how you feel, you listen to the wisdom of your body, as Deepak Chopra says. All of these things become possible when we have this sort of baseline frequency, which is in an equilibrium. And this is what resonance breathing does. And if you do it for, say, 10 to 20 minutes every day for about five weeks, it resets your nervous system. You sleep better. You can listen better. You'll be more calm. Lower rates of inflammation in the body. Better heart rate variability. Better vagal tone, which means the information, information flowing in the vagus nerve is from the visceral organs up to the brain is, is going more unimpeded. Appreciation, gratitude, and kindness. Support and enhance HRV and resonance and anger and anxiety are things which are going to deplete heart rate variability, vagal tone, and our ability to be in this resonance frequency. So there are mental attitudes as well, mm. which are directly correlated to our physical and emotional health. I was practicing this breathing technique whereby what you do is instead of trying to meditate and let your breath slow, you start with the breath. So instead of this top down, you go bottom up. So you use your breath to bring yourself into a meditative state. Because if you slow down to five to seven breaths per minute, you change your brainwave frequency to be in the same meditative state that the yogis are in. You say you can't meditate, that's fine. You can still breathe. And if you can slow your breath down, you can bring yourself into the meditative state without trying to meditate. And it's so simple. It's super simple. Deepak helped me a little bit with the science. And I had a, a friend who was an app designer who helped with all of the coding. And I had this idea of what if you just had a ball that got bigger 
for five or six seconds and got smaller for five or six seconds and you could inhale when it got bigger and exhale when it got smaller. And that's what we did with a few different ratios. And then I had Moby, who's an old, old friend of mine from when I was 16, record some sounds that would you could inhale with one sound and exhale with the other, which is, that's my favorite one to do. Me too, because then yeah. you can close your eyes. Yeah, and then you have like brainwave and breath entrainment in the same time, and it's like super cool. So, and that's the whole app. And so it accomplished the three things I wanted. I wanted it to be free, I wanted it to look nice, and I wanted it to be easy to use with no attachments or wearables. So that's it. It's on iTunes and on Android. And and it's just called The Breathing it's App. It's called The Breathing App. I use it all the time cool. since you, since it was in beta when you first sent it to that's me. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. I just have one last question, which is how can we bring some of this consciousness that you're talking about to our, like if we're sitting at our, desk, for example, can we do the breathing during a meeting or, you know, riding home in traffic? What are, what are the things that we can do to increase the pause? That's a really nice way of putting it to increase the pause. The best thing we can do is practice outside of a stressful situation. You do a daily practice. So you attune yourself to where you need to be when you need to be there. Um, Dr. Richard Geverts, who's one of the doctors who's presented a lot of the information about resonance breathing, says that you should practice it like 10 or 15 minutes a day for five weeks or so. And then after that, you can reduce the amount of time you're doing resonance breathing, say five or seven minutes a day. But during the day, periodically, when you feel you need it, you can take a few rescue breaths. If you feel tension coming up, you go automatically into your resonance breathing of slowing the breath down and it resets your nervous system automatically because your nervous system has become attuned to knowing what state it needs to go Mm. into. And that's a mental thing, an emotional thing, a physiological thing, all at the same time. So when we have a practice that we do every day just for a few minutes, Mm. we're preparing ourselves for the ups and downs of life. And in, in yoga, this is called tapas, which is austerity or daily practice. And the, the benefit of, they say in the Yoga Sutras that the result of doing some daily practice, yoga, breathing, meditation, whatever, is that you begin to develop the ability to withstand the ups and downs of life with a calm mind. So you can't do it in the moment. Interesting. You need to practice outside of the moment. So when the moment comes, you're ready for that moment. That's what mastery is. Thank you for joining my chat with my beloved Eddie Stern. You can learn more about his work and see his teaching schedule at eddiestern.com. I also highly recommend you download the breathing app. And if you haven't already, pick up a copy of his book, One Simple Thing, you can also see more of the interviews we've done with Eddie over the years at goop.com slash the podcast. Again, we're so grateful that you tuned in to the Goop podcast today, and we hope you'll be back soon. We have a new episode coming on Thursday. As always, we'd love to know what you think. So please rate and review, share with a friend and hit subscribe. Head to goop.com slash the podcast for more info.